0: You know, some of the interesting storylines about tonight in the Super Bowl have to do with leadership, Uh, whether it's the leadership of Matt Ryan on the Falcons, who's led his team to the number one offense in the whole NFL. Uh, There's also the leadership string of Bill Belichick and Tom Brady, coach and quarterback of the Patriots. This would be their fifth Super Bowl ring together if they get it. One of the most interesting has to do with the leader of the NFL, Roger Goodell. You remember at the beginning of this year, he suspended Tom Brady for four games because of the deflated footballs last year. One of the things some people are eagerly waiting for, especially Patriots fans, is if the Patriots win, that same commissioner, the leader of the league, will have to hand that trophy to Tom Brady and Bill Belichick on that stage. They would relish that moment.
1: A lot of leadership
0: storylines with the Super Bowl. We're going to have a leadership storyline of our own this morning but it has not to do with leadership in the NFL but leadership in the church. If you guys remember as we go through this book of 1st Timothy it's a letter from Paul to Timothy helping Timothy understand how the church in the city of Ephesus needs to operate. And along the way one of the important things to Paul is what does leadership need to look like in the local church? As I met with our elders a couple weeks ago, we usually meet at... We have fancy meetings at McDonald's. Friday mornings at 6.45, sausage, burritos, and coffee. We were talking about a couple extremes that we see as unbiblical. Uh, one is a church with no leadership where everything is decided by vote. We don't see that in the Bible. The other extreme is a church led by one man. One man makes all the decisions and runs everything. What we see in the New Testament is a team of leaders that lead God's church. That's why as I meet with Aaron and Bill and Paul, I value them so much. Acts 14.23 says that as Paul and Barnabas went around and the people started to get saved and they planted churches, it says they appointed elders with an S on the end in every town. There's always a team leading the church it's interesting, when you look through the New Testament, there's lots of different words for leaders of the church. There's elders, overseers, shepherds. And if you study the New Testament, what you start to learn is all those names basically are referring to the same role in the church. How do we know that? Well, in Acts chapter 20, Paul sent for the elders of Ephesus. He wanted to see them. In Acts 20.17, it says he sent for the elders of the church. But then later in that chapter, in verse 28, he says, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flocks of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. For the elders are overseers. Peter told the elders in 1 Peter 5 to serve as overseers. Listen to what he said in verse 1. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them. That's the oversight idea. They're all the same role, but there need to be a team of them. Those of you who know your denominations will find this interesting, okay? The word elder comes from the Greek word presbyteros. You hear a denomination in there? Presbyterian. And the idea of elder is primarily Jewish. The synagogues where the Jews would meet to worship were led by elders. And the elder title for the leaders in the church primarily refers to the maturity required for the role. The other word, overseer, that Greek word is episkopos. Sound like another denomination? Episcopal, right? Overseer talks more about the role of watching over and caring for. So all these terms together, you got shepherding, that, that aspect of knowing, feeding, leading, and protecting. They help us define what leadership should look for and look like in the church. I want you to listen to verse 1 in our chapter, as Paul writes to Timothy. He says, here is a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Aspires literally means like to, to reach out for something. That you want and desire is to have an inward passion for something. Tonight, after Carolyn makes her spicy sausage queso, I am going to aspire to get some of it, and I will also desire it deeply. It's, those are the meanings of those words. But what's he say? Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now, when you look at some of the verses in the New Testament, you've got, got to wonder why anyone would ever aspire for this role. Okay, listen to some of the things that, that God's Word says. James 3.1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Okay, there's going to be a stricter judgment for people in this role who teach. That sounds like fun, right? Uh, Hebrews 13.17 Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. (laughs) So you're going to be held to a stricter standard, and you're going to give an account to God one day for how you lead. Like, why would anybody aspire for it? Paul says it's a noble Ask. It's a noble, noble thing. Why is it noble? Well, you think about the value of who church leaders oversee. To determine the value of something, you've got to know what someone would pay for it, right? Well, in Acts 20.28, 20, Paul tells the elders there, Keep watch over yourselves, and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, be shepherds of the church of God which he bought with his own blood. All right, now we're starting to get why this is a noble task. Because you're overseeing people that Jesus paid for with his own blood. That ought to radically affect how leaders lead the church. It ought to radically affect how we all treat each other within the church. That person was so valuable to God that Jesus literally died for them. Paid for them with his blood. It's also noble because of who you work for. If you read the New Testament, you know the local leaders of the church are not the head of the church. You know who the head of the church is? Jesus. Jesus. Think about that. Local leaders are just under shepherds, he's the chief shepherd. So you got the high price he paid and, and who you work for. Later on in Acts chapter 20, he tells the elders one of their important jobs. Verse 29. He told them, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you, night and day, with tears. He said, guys, I know you're leading faithfully as elders, but one day there's going to be people in your church, maybe even elders, who rise up to lead you astray, savage wolves, and you've got to protect them. What's the connection with our passage in Timothy? This is the church he's, he was talking to. And now that Timothy's there, this is happening. So now you've got to protect the church from savage wolves, false teachers. One of the things I've noticed now that Carolyn's pregnant, when she's not pregnant, when it's time to go out to eat, we have this, I don't know, what do you feel like, I don't know, what do you feel like conversation that we usually go back and forth for like 45 minutes before we find something. Now when she's pregnant, on Monday she said, I feel like a roast beef sandwich at Speeds Deli. What do you think? (laughs) I said, sounds good to me. So we went down there, and all their sandwiches, if you've been there, you know, are named after airplanes. It's close to Embry-Riddle. A lot of students go there. So we got the G-46 Commando. We split it because they're so huge. But while we're there, the, the lady that runs the place always has movies playing. I didn't know what movie it was, I know it was a western, Denzel Washington, come to find out it was Magnificent Seven, we googled it, but what's going on in that movie is there's a group of, of cowboys looking to protect a town from some villainous murderers who had already come into a church and killed some people, and the part that was on in there while we were eating our sandwich, all the good guys are standing at night on the front porch of an establishment. And it's the night before they know they're going to have their big showdown with the bad guys. And they're talking about all the dangers that are going to come the next day. But one of the men in that group said this to the rest of them. He said, to be in the service of others with men I respect like you all, well, I shouldn't have to ask for more than that. And I heard that and I thought, man, that that sums up what it's like to lead the church as a team. That's how I feel about Aaron and Bill and Paul. I'm so thankful for these men and the opportunity to be part of this church by being faithful to the roles God's called us to. That desire ultimately comes from God, I believe. You, you read that one passage where Paul said, the Holy Spirit made you overseers. I want to give you the nutshell version of, of some of what I've seen on our team. Some of you know my story. When I was a high school senior and it's time to talk to the guidance counselor about what am I going to do next I sat down with him and said what do you got you know what are some options and she's going through all these things and oh journalism that sounds good didn't pray about it didn't seek God just say hey, what what kind of looks interesting so I signed up for journalism at the local community college a couple weeks later after school ended Pastor Lee Wiggins who many of you know from Prescott who's my junior high pastor then in Ohio took us to Canada to a conference and the man there said, you know, you all are looking at what you, what you want to do with your lives, but you need to be asking, what does God want you to do with your life? And what you need to do is make your life like a blank sheet of paper and sign it at the bottom and say, okay, God, you fill in the details. Whatever you want, I will do. And he said, if you want to do that today, just do that in your heart. Say, God, what do you want? And he impressed it on my heart clear as day at that moment. I want you to work in leadership in the church. And I thought of all the pastors throughout all the years who have poured into me and how much they meant to me, and it was cemented in that moment. I look at Aaron. Many of you may not know this, but as he prayed through coming as a minister here and an elder, as he was weighing out that decision, he had on the table a full-time offer from another church to lead worship.
1: It was either that
0: or continue to work as the vice principal at the school where he works which is also very important, and work here as well. As he prayed through it, he felt God's call to come here so strongly. He said, I'm coming. Even though i got another full-time worship job on the table, I'm coming to the church next door because I believe God wants me here. I think about how Bill, Bill started out. He and Kendra had been here from the early days when things were just in seed form at the church next door. And then he started asking, "Hey, could would you guys mind if I uh, shared some thoughts with you about the church and some things that are on my heart?" And he would come to our six forty five meetings, sometimes, even though I know that's not the favorite time of his day. <laughs> and there were a number of times where he started and he said, "Hey, I, I care about this, and what do you guys think about this?" And what? and after that happened a few times, we started to say, "Hey, this guy really cares for this church. His family really cares for this church." I think about Paul, who's who's just working in and Kitty the love for people that he's shown in this community and in Mexico and other places throughout the years, if you know them, you know that just comes out. But you know, for each one of us, if we didn't do it, there would be a restlessness inside. One of my professors at Moody Bible Institute said, if there's anything else you can do and be happy, do it. (laughs) But he said, if this burns in your heart and you know that nothing else Would fulfill you? You know God's put that in you? Then continue on. I want to go on. He starts to list some of the qualifications for an elder in the church. The first thing he says is, the overseer is to be above reproach. When you look at the Greek for that phrase, basically what it means is, there's no handle. That's that's the idea. There, no handle that someone could grab onto and pull him down or pull down the church because of something going on in his life. How many wrestlers in here? No wrestlers. <laughs> oh, we got one. All right, Mike. So you, you all know wrestlers wear those real tight outfits, right? You know, <laughs> do you wear one of those? <laughs> I'd like to see some pictures we could put up here next week, if that's all right. <laughs> you guys know why they wear those? It's not just to show off their sleek physique to the gals watching. I'm sure that's part of it. <laughs> no, it's because if you wear loose clothes, it, gets, give, it would give the opponent something to grab onto and pull you down. He's saying, hey, if you want to lead in the church, you can't have something sinful ongoing in your life that, Someone in the community or your church could grab onto, or someone outside the church who, who's not a believer could say, Look at this, and pull that leader down and pull the church down. Does it mean leaders are perfect? <laughs> Nobody's perfect. Just talk to our wives. But it does mean he takes seriously don't let there be something in your life that someone on the outside could use to pull you or the church down. He goes on to say in the NIV, faithful to his wife. The Greek for this phrase is interesting and has caused a lot of confusion. It literally says a one-woman man. The elder's got to be a one-woman man. And over the years, a lot of people have debated, like, what does that mean? Like, is Paul uh, speaking about polygamy? And some have looked at that and said, well, of course, we know that's not right, but that wasn't really a big problem in the early church. They kind of knew that. That's kind of like common sense. So probably not that. Uh, was he saying that someone who was widowed could not remarry again and still be an elder? And we don't believe that's true because, you know, in Romans 7 and in Corinthians, Paul gives permission to those who are widows to, to remarry. They're no longer bound. Some have said, does it refer to someone who is divorced that they can't be elder? And, and I think personally, that's just too clear cut. Because there are legitimate grounds for divorce in the Bible. You know, adultery on the part of the other partner, and if an unbelieving spouse leaves. And when I read the New Testament, I believe when Paul says there's, divorce is allowed, remarriage is allowed too. So I don't think they would necessarily be ruled out in those situations. So it's not that clear cut. What What is Paul really getting at? I believe what he's primarily referring to is that the elder who is married needs to be faithful to that woman he's married to. Faithful in his actions, faithful in his mind. He must cherish her, treasure her, and treat her faithfully. I think that's the primary thrust of what he's saying to the elder. We, we knew a couple when we went to Moody Bible Institute. We'd, we'd go out for meals with them and We've stayed in touch with them throughout the years on Facebook. They had a ministry out east. About a year ago, as they were into a new church plant, we read a post that shook us to the core. His wife said that as they were launching this new church plant, he was having an affair with another woman. And he wouldn't repent, wouldn't give it up. So her and her two children have now chosen legitimately to leave him. And you think about that, you think, one, about the fallout to the family. How painful is that? But it's bigger than that, because there's also a whole church now reeling in the aftermath of what's happened. Paul's saying, elders, if you're married, you need to be faithful to that woman God gave you. He says, temperate. That means like clear-headed, and sober, serious, but... One guy is quick to say this. Hendrickson says that serious is not the same as somber. Have you ever been to a place where you felt like the leaders were not allowed to smile? Like, and if they did, they'd be being irreverent. That's that's not what this means. Some of you all have heard the story when me and Pastor Sam Webb were doing a baptism one time, and we were so happy. We were joking with the guy that just came up out of the water and celebrating with him, and then after service, someone grabbed us in the lobby and said, was very disturbed by the irreverence of your behavior during this solemn occasion. And we said, this is not solemn. This is a celebration. This is a picture of someone who just got saved and is now living a new life. Serious doesn't mean sombre, it doesn't mean you can't have a sense of humor. What it does mean is you always remember why we're here. Always remember we're here on a mission to tell others about Jesus. We're here to glorify God above all else, and these things really matter. Can you have fun as you do that? Yeah. Just keep that in mind. Never get distracted by trivial things to where you forget why you're here. Self-controlled. This one's important. How many of you have ever led a company or or a business or anything? Done road trips for, for business? You know that in those roles, you spend a fair amount of time alone, right? Like, I think about this in regards to the church, like on my sermon prep day, do you know how easy it would be for me to play solitaire on that computer all day if I wanted to? (laughs) Seriously, like, none of you would know about it, unless it was a really bad sermon, and then you might. (laughs) But what happens in that moment, I'm faced with a a test of integrity, right? I got to remember, hey, number one, I love prepping sermons anyway, that helps. That helps. But number two, I, I work for a God to whom I'm going to give account. And I've got to be faithful to the charge with these people. That, that requires self-control in that moment. Or think about this. Sometimes when I have a planning meeting or something with, with folks from the church, I can turn in the receipt for the meal. How easy would it be to take out the family to Cracker Barrel and say, Hey, that was a, a planning meeting for uh, such and such at the church and turn that into Gene but I can't because God calls me to be self-controlled. And He says, one day you're going to stand before me as a leader. And all of you who run businesses and go on business church know the same thing. There's some integrity required in leadership. Respectable. That word is from the Greek word kosmios. Some of you may have heard the word cosmos, which means the, the world system. What it, what it gets back to is an orderly system. He's saying your life has to have some order to it doesn't mean you're not busy and doesn't mean some days don't feel crazy, but it, it, it does mean your life cannot be chaos. Cosmios is the opposite of chaos because what happens? if your personal life is chaos, eventually that's going to trickle into what happens in the church right because you can't bring order there if, you, if you're living in chaos the rest of your life. there's got to be some order to it hospitable the greek word literally means love of strangers i look around at our elder team i know there's a group that loves people we love on on our street having people over from our neighborhood once or twice a year for get-togethers to to build into their lives we love having our small group from the church and others over there's got to be a love for people Love of strangers is important because later on he says this leader has to have a good reputation with outsiders. But if you never spend time with outsiders, how can you have a good reputation with them? We're ultimately not here just for God's flock. We're here to reach a lost world, right? And if elders aren't modeling that, then how can we call the church to that? Able to teach. It's interesting. This is the one like to do the rest of these are character traits right this is the one to do in this list able to teach and this doesn't mean it always has to be on Sunday morning it could be a large group like this it could be a small group it could be one on one but everyone who is an elder has to know God's word and have an ability and passion to pour it in to the lives of people I just mentioned that's the only to do the rest of these have to do with being with character right I find it interesting that when God wanted to tell Timothy what to look for in a leader, most of it had to do with character, to be or not to do. Today, sometimes we want to divorce those things. Our world says, hey, as long as you can do the job, throw character aside. Just can you get the job done, right? God says, uh-uh, not not in my church. Character matters. I had a friend on Facebook this week. They put out a profanity-laced post. From beginning to end, and one of the person's relatives said, You were raised better than that. (laughs) And the original person said, Heart of gold, mouth of a sailor. Smiley face. She was making that distinction that our world tries to make. You, You can somehow separate character in the to do list. But what does Jesus say? He says, It's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. And elders are to be examples who who show the way. How can you do that without character? Charles Spurgeon once talked about a speaker, a preacher who was so good in the pulpit that you never wanted to let him out of the pulpit. But he was so bad at living, you never wanted to let him back into the pulpit. (laughs) You want to steer clear of that. You want your life to be an example. And this is where we get into what does this passage have to do with people who are not elders and deacons. Well, elders and deacons are called to be examples in these areas because these are the same things the church is called to. Why else do we need to be examples of it? You look through the rest of the New Testament, all of these with the exception of being able to teach, that's a gift given to some All of these are required of each person in the body of Christ. So he's saying, elders, you better show up by example. 1 Peter 1.3, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. (coughs) Timothy Whitmer wrote a great book about shepherding in relation to church leadership. And he told a story about a tour guide in Israel that was leading a group through the country. And he had just finished telling the people that shepherds always lead from the front. They never drive their sheep from behind. They always lead from the front. But then as they were going down the road in their tour bus, it's kind of funny, one of the people on the bus looked over and said, hey, there's a, there's a shepherd and his sheep, but he's, the shepherd's behind him. And so the tourist said, oh, man, i got to go talk to this guy and see what's going on. So he goes over and talks to the, the guy pushing the sheep from behind and then he gets back on the bus and he smiles and he said, "Uh, that wasn't the shepherd, that's the butcher. (laughs) They'll never forget that. See, leaders are supposed to lead by example. I think part of the reason teaching is included in this list is the best teaching is teaching that has been taken in by the teacher, absorbed into his life and lived out in this life before he ever shares it. That's the most authentic kind of teaching there is. Next one, he says, not given to drunkenness. The Greek there literally means one who lingers by the cup. Now, he doesn't here forbid leaders from ever having a drink, but he does say drunkenness cannot be part of the life of a leader. And we see this throughout the Old Testament to multiple leaders. In Proverbs 31 4 and 5, it says, It is not for kings, Lemuel. That's where you got your name, right? Proverbs 31? Lemuel's right here. It's not for kings, Lemuel. It's not for kings to drink wine, not for rulers to crave beer, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and deprive all the oppressed of their rights. Like kings, you've got an important job to do. You've got to keep a clear head. You can't be drunk and lead your country. Then the next one appears to be talking to judges. Isaiah 5, and 23. He says, Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and champions at mixing drinks, who acquit the guilty for a bribe but deny justice to the innocent. He's saying drunkenness clouds your judgment. Next, he talks to priests and prophets in the Old Testament. Isaiah 28 7. Priests and prophets stagger from beer and are befuddled with wine. They reel from beer. They stagger when seeing visions. They stumble when rendering decisions. You see why it's so important for the leader not to be drunk? It clouds their judgment and it affects the whole group because they're a leader. He goes on to say, not violent. That literally means a striker. When I read this, I thought about something that happened in Phoenix a couple weeks ago. PBS had a, a day down there where you could take the kids down and they could meet some of the characters on the show. and They had designated several parking garages where you could park for free. And one of them that was marked on the map, we followed it and went to the garage and we got there. And the security guard says, sorry, they put that wrong on the map. This is... Uh, not a place you can park for the PBS event. This is this is private. And when he said private, I thought, oh, it just costs money. So my first response is, how much would it cost to park here? And I'm not kidding. As soon as I said that, he stood up in his booth and started walking to my car like this. And he said, I told you it's private. <laughs> and I started backing out. I don't know what he was about to do. I just was a little confused. He was. He seemed like he was ready to. Go to it. He said, hey, if you lead the church, you should not be quick to that kind of reaction. I would say it extends not just to physically, but even verbally. You shouldn't be quick to verbally strike people as a leader in God's church. He says, but gentle, not quarrelsome. You remember one of Timothy's jobs was to fight against false teachers in the church. One of the jobs of the the elders is to protect the church. There's a boldness and a strength from God that comes with that charge. But even as he does that, listen to what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. Even when confronting these savage wolves, these false teachers, they must be gently instructed instructed I think about this idea not quarrelsome in general and I think about our world and some of the the conversations that take place and I come back to what James said in chapter 1 verse 19 and 20 and I think how much better would our our churches be would our world be if we live by these two verses my dear brothers and sisters take note of this Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. How different would things look if we all practiced that? And he says, leaders, you've got to model that. You've got to model that. John Stott says it this way, the leader's patience may be sorely tried, but like his master, he will seek to be gentle, never crushing a bruised reed or snuffing out a wick that is burning low. He goes on to say, not a lover of money. Can't love money. In chapter 6, he says, a love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now, a lot of times, we're quick to go to the televangelists when we think of this, right? Right? Like, oh yeah, I know that story. I remember that about that televangelist. But listen, something I read this week that we ought to think about, you don't have to be rich to be guilty of being a lover of money. Did you know that? Thomas Constable said this, poor people as well as the rich may love money. Moreover, not all rich people love it. The opposite attitude is contentment. See, the opposite of being a lover of money isn't necessarily being poor it's being content are we content with what god's given us he says leaders you got to model that then he goes on to talk about family the leader's home life he must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect if anyone does not know how to manage his own family how can he take care of god's church I find it interesting that twice in this chapter, when he talks about the home family and the church family, he uses the same Greek word, oikos, household. That tells us something about how God views church. He doesn't view it primarily as an organization or a business. He views it as family. He's saying there's a connection between how you lead at home and how you lead at church. You think about that balance of love and discipline in the home, discipling, and he says there's got to be that balance in the church. One of the things we've been talking about as elders is that elders need to know the people in the church. You need to know the people in the church, lead, feed, and protect underneath the headship of Jesus. And we've talked about, hey, this year we're going to try something. And I'm giving you a heads up. For a reason. This year, we're going to try making regular phone calls to those of you who are regulars and who we have contact info for. We're going to start maybe once a month and just say, hey, is there anything going on in your life that we can be praying for right now? Anything good that we can celebrate with you? Anything tough that we can lift up to God for you? And then go from there and and begin to really build. This relationship, because elders in the Bible are not just people who rubber stamp business decisions. They're shepherds. They're people that that love God's church. So why do I give you a heads up on that? So that later this month when you get a call from one of our elders, your first thought isn't, uh-oh. What did I do? Because you know what? In a lot of churches, that's the only time you hear from the elders, right? <laughs> bum, bum, bum. Oh, it's so much more than that. There needs to be this ongoing loving relationship. And we want to continue to grow in that as the leaders at this church. So when that phone rings, just know we want to know, hey, how can we be praying for you? Number six says, he must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. You remember what happened with the devil, right? He got proud. He wanted to be like God. And so he rebelled against God and he got thrown out of heaven. He's saying you can't put a new Christian in the role of leader for that same reason. Because their head's going to get big. They don't have the the humility and the foundation that's needed, the maturity to handle that kind of role. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders. So that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. I want to close with this one. When, when you talk about that good reputation with outsiders, again, leaders are to model this because we're all supposed to have that. And it brings up questions like this. If somebody in this church were to go to the people you pay your bills to, if they were to go to your boss, if they were to go to your customers, if they were to go to the cashier where you shop, if they were to go to the waitress where you ate Friday night, If they were to go to the drivers that drive with you on the way to work, what would they have to say about you? I'm guessing as you think about that list, and you can make it even bigger, if you're like me, you can think of some places where you say, man, I need to make sure my life is consistent. Some of us will be tempted to say, it doesn't matter what people think. Paul says otherwise. He says you have to have a good reputation with outsiders so that you will not fall into disgrace in the devil's trap, especially for a leader. It's again a matter of you don't want to give anybody a handle to grab onto and say, no, that church preaches about Jesus and all, but I know this about that pastor. I know this about that elder. I know this about that member. We don't want to give them those handles. Next week, we're going to pick up with deacons, but for today, I want to close with this. A couple quotes and a couple questions. When you think about how Jesus wants not just to forgive us so that we can go back to our old sin. He wants to change our lives. Listen to this quote by N.T. Wright. The point of forgiveness is not that we can then relax and go on sinning because it will all be all right somehow. But that God's forgiving love is meant to transform us into the new type of human beings which is what he longs to see. It is vital that those who hold leadership should model the gospel message that there's a different way to be human, a different kind of lifestyle from what we see in the world all around. That leads me to a question. Are we as leaders in church family modeling a different kind of lifestyle to the watching world? Second comes from Jesus himself. Luke 22, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you're not to be like that. You're not supposed to lord it over those you lead. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table, but I am among you as one who serves? As you think of Jesus in a towel, washing dirty disciples' feet, it leads us to a question. When we think of leadership in the church, do we think of leadership in the world's terms? Or do we think of leadership in Jesus' terms?